In today's podcast, we interview Mark Rossano, founder and CEO of C6 Capital Holdings, LLC. This is a really exciting conversation where Mark takes us around the world to explore the relationship between oil and gas supply and demand, global politics, and the raw fundamentals that drive the world's economy. I gotta say, I think that Mark has that really rare ability to take a lot of disconnected data points and bring them together in a meaningful way to paint a picture of the current global economy. This was a really fun conversation for me because we got to jump around across a lot of different topics covering the global market. And I know Mark's got this backed up with great data. So I hope you enjoy and thanks for listening. Hi, Mark. Thanks for coming on the show today. No, I, I thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, and you and I had a good long chat yesterday, and I think I was just impressed by um, how detailed you are at, uh, you know, looking at all the different metrics that go into the global supply and demand uh, cycle and, and where we're at presently in the world. No, I appreciate it. You know, we... We definitely ran the uh, the gauntlet on, on some of those different topics, and and one of the interesting things that when when you look at the supply demand metrics, you know demand is becoming such a moving target. You know it's always been fluid, but now with COVID nineteen and and the issues that we're seeing as as countries and companies really struggle to restart, we're seeing this this counterbalance of well, where's supply going? Where should it go? And then who's buying it? Like, you know, if you think about refiners, pet chems as the natural buyers of a huge chunk of this oil, you know, what are they doing? Like, what are they seeing on their end? And it's definitely a tale of two cities. And, and it's kind of hard to, to balance the two in terms of which economic data matters most, you know, which refiner is going to make money. And then which refiner, like what crude is that refiner going to buy, which is always a, a fun topic. Yeah. So I just up front here, I just want to let everybody know, all the listeners, that we'll be uh, sharing uh, Mark's uh, presentation that he had prepared for C6 Capital Holdings, his company, LLC, where he's CEO and founder. And I think it's an incredible piece with a ton of metrics that you should definitely download uh, if you're even a little bit interested in, uh, you know, where we stand um, globally. Uh, but I think... Mark, can, can you tell us, just to kick off, what are some of the most key data points for you on a day-to-day basis? Like, you only have so much time in the day, and it kind of seems like you're looking at everything. What, what's kind of on your top three list of things you like to keep an eye on to, to track trends in the market? You know, it, it's a great question, and, and the thing that I, I always check on first is the you know the refinery crack spreads on a on a global level? So I, I've been able to to integrate that just to have it on one screen, and I can quickly look at it and say, okay, where is gasoline trading, or you know what are the refinery margins for gasoline, distillate, and by distillate I'm looking at heating oil, gas oil, jet fuel, and just trying to piece it together because you know we know that there aren't planes in the air, and if there are, there's way less than there, than there used to be. We also know that trucks aren't moving as much. We know trains aren't moving as much, ships. But, you know, gasoline is interesting because you have people who have been, you know, cooped up for however many months looking to get out. So it's a matter of looking at that basket 
and understanding, you know, who's, who's going to buy more oil to make those products because they're going to see a margin. And that's how I try to get a sense of, okay, well, where is the trend going? Is the trend changing or is it something that there's going to be a headwind in demand over the next, call it six, 12, uh, you know, month, uh, weeks or so? So uh, looking at things right now, do you think we've hit the absolute bottom in demand? Yeah, I, I think we've hit a point where, you know, we, we've talked about it in the past. Uh, my initial view was that we were going to get to about a 38 million barrel a day uh, demand destruction. And we could have peaked, you know, at about 50, depending on how quickly people started to come back and companies started to come back. I, I think we, we really peaked at about 38. And, and we've seen some recovery since then, uh, specifically out of Europe, out of uh, China, and then uh, uh, as well out of the U.S. So I, I think we, we've, we've kind of come off that bottom. I think the market or, you know, let's just call it the financial institutions are, are sitting there saying that, you know, the recovery is here. And I just think that the recovery back to normal is going to be much longer than I think the market is anticipating. And it's purely because you see this bounce. We, you know, we had a terrible number, and now we have a less bad number. And there's a view that that's going to continue to go, but there's a certain, you know, there's a certain peak and normalization as people kind of weigh, well, the virus is still out there. Do I want to take that risk, or do I want to, you know, give it a little bit more time? And what is my employment status, and what does my savings look like? And that's where I think you're going to get some of that slowdown in this recovery. So uh, globally, what uh, who's kind of leading the front here on recovering demand of uh, uh, hydrocarbon products, and who's who's the furthest behind, and uh, you know the slowest to recover. So here we have uh, China, you know, first in, first out type situation where China was obviously the first where this originated and, and how it kind of spread. So they were that first in component. And then you look at some of the others in terms of South Korea, Japan, and that Asian uh, component that really got hit hard. So China has come back more. But the problem is, and you know, something that we were talking about yesterday, there's a big divergence between Monday to Friday and Saturday, Sunday. You know, Monday to Friday, I have to go to work. You know, the government is telling me I have to go. My company's telling me I have to go, even though they're not producing at any real level, given new orders, exports, et cetera. You know, you're seeing that there is an industrial slowdown, but they're still going to work. So the demand is there on a gasoline level, not so much on distillate and diesel. But then on the weekends, when it's their decision, you still have a huge head, uh, headwind in terms of actual demand on a personal level. And that's where I, I, I think that is a recipe of how things are going to play out throughout the world, where, look, I'll go to work, and because I have to, you know, I, I need the money, I can't, I can't be furloughed, I need to get back to employment, but what am I doing with my discretionary capital? Like, what am I doing on my vacation? And, and I think that's where you're going to see those headwinds over the longer term. So I would say China was the first out, and I think they're starting to peak a little bit and actually come back down in terms of that demand. 
And even though Europe was one of the second in, if you will, if you think about how it kind of went from China to Italy, I think that you're going to see a lot of headwinds in Europe over the longer term, just because they, they kind of went into this and, and on the weakest uh, economic footing. So it'll take a lot longer for them to kind of dig themselves out and re- kind of restart their economy to see that demand start to, uh, you know, that demand resurgence. So when you're looking at the data now and, and trying to project into the future, you know, I, I, it seems like histor- historical references are really important. And from what I understand, and I could be wrong here, but a lot of the uh, fintech is based on algorithms that take historical case models. But it seems to me in this case, you know, all of the historical case models that we have for something of this global scale, we don't really have all that great of data. Is that um, is that true? And if it is, you know, what what can we use as historical references that can give us some meaning um, in looking forward into what the recovery looks like and and what might also be some you know pitfalls moving forward um, that that might you know upset us and and be some potential black swans in the market. Yeah, the it's it's interesting because we we've never seen things like Zoom or work from home really kind of roll out in the way it, it it's being integrated into the everyday life. Now, given if you work at a uh, at a car factory or a meat processing plant, you know working from home isn't an option. But for people that are sitting at a desk or that have to take mass transit or sit in an open floor plan, all of a sudden. The, the world is, is changing. And there's really, like you said, that's unprecedented. Like we've never had the interconnective nature that we have today. And people are actually finding there's a lot of value and there you can actually create more face time instead of traveling as much. So I think on a go forward level, I think corporate travel is going to change, which is going to be a long-term impact to the airlines, because let's be fair, Airlines make money on first class, not the guy sitting next to the bathroom. Like, that's just the way their model works. Mm. And if you don't have those kind of tickets being sold, that's going to be a, a huge headwind towards their margin, but also just general demand for, for airplanes and airplane uh, capacity. So then you, you kind of drill down and you say, well, what are the algos looking at? Like, what are things looking at? Where can you go back and try to find what the depth looks like? And, and I think unemployment is a big bellwether to look at. And the reason why I say unemployment, even though it's considered kind of a lagging indicator, because typically you have an event, the event creates unemployment, and so you're, you're already behind the eight ball. But I think the magnitude of the unemployment is interesting, because when you have this many people who are going from furloughed to all out unemployed, what's going to happen on the back end. And it's, I will now accept a lower wage to go back to work. But if I'm accepting a lower, a lower salary, but you know, you know, Powell and some of the others within the Fed are, are saying, oh, but we're going to keep asset prices elevated. Well, now my real wage and my discretionary capital is, is shrinking. Mm-hmm. And I think that is going to be a long-term impact into the way people spend. And spending is going to adjust 
and you know, like we've 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 joked that you know everyone wanted the newest iPhone, the newest Air Jordans, the newest you know TV, and it's well, why? Like, what was the reason? Because they got rid of a button? Because it's it's a half a millisecond faster? Like maybe maybe you don't need that cycle, and I think that's where you're going to start to see those adjustments. Yeah. And I definitely, I mean, I kind of sense that myself even, and I don't know if it's reflective of everybody else, but you know, when I'm looking at the things around me, I'm like, do I really need this? Is this really, and it's something that's always been important to me, I think is just, you know, qualifying what makes me happy. But I think this moment in time has really accelerated that reflection. I mean, one, because kind of stuck at home and can't go anywhere. So I think that just inherently makes you look inwards and, and figure out what's going on. And then also just economically because of the uncertainty of things. And, and because of that, it just it makes you think it's it's like, where am I really placing value in my life? And is that a good place of, of value and time and energy? Or is that just something that I was doing automatically that I wasn't even aware of? I, I, absolutely, and, and that's where I think you get a, a stabilization and this and this kind of pullback. You know, pulling this back all full circle to energy. It's if people aren't buying as much, I don't need to ship as much. I don't need to move as much by by ship, train, rail, air freight. And then if that changes, well, then also how how are spending patterns changing? You know, am I going? to Disney World or am I going to a campground because I don't want to be near people and I but I still want to get out. Yeah. And you I think you start to see a, a changing pattern. But again, like how, how do you how do you measure that? Like what, what is like maybe some people are listening to us right now saying I absolutely not. I'm going to a, to a bar the moment it's <laughs> open. It's fine, you know, everything is fine. But other people who I think have small, like young families and and older, are going to look at this differently and and adjust the patterns in which they're spending and traveling, and maybe they're tired of living paycheck to paycheck with ten thousand dollars in credit card debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, but I, that must be really frustrating for uh, someone who's so numbers driven to have so much uncertainty. I guess. And I think that's part of my sense of things, at least with the market is the market doesn't really know how to deal with the uncertainty. So it compensates with overconfidence. Um, but I, I, I find you to be a pretty humble guy. And, and I, I would think that, you know, there's, you know, so much unprecedented here as far as what kind of effect this has on the market that we can't really look forward and project and and that must make it difficult for for you and in, in your position to to create a clear vision of what the you know maybe three months is easy but when you're looking at like year two years three years things start getting pretty blurry pretty quick i would think yeah and and it's you know everyone likes to re- to remind me and and you always see commentary where the stock market isn't the economy and that's fine. That's a fair assessment. The stock market is not the economy. That's That's been the case for over a decade and probably more since we started quantitative easing because the market became a means of liquidity, a means of like, let's let's just pump dollars in and hope for the best. But now when you talk about looking forward, the stock market and the companies that make up that market are going to have headwinds on earnings. So what multiple are you willing to buy a stock at? 
So when I look at the at the you know the the today and then trying to go out into the tomorrow and beyond, you have the market that reacts to liquidity events like when Powell spoke on Sunday, essentially saying they have a ton of options, they'll buy ETFs, they'll buy stocks, and and you're sitting there saying, well, why would you do that? Like I thought everything was was getting better. I thought the we were on a, a solid footing, or you know, and then you get kind of get these. It's like, oh no, we're not. And unemployment is going to get much worse. It's going to be sticky, so we have to prop up the econ- the economy. But it's you're not, you know, you're propping up the stock market, which is is you know we're seeing that divergence. So as we try to see when does one meet the other, it's getting difficult because you know you'll have the headlines start to react and try to place a narrative. Like, you know, oil rallies and, and the, 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 everyone says, oh, well, China's recovering. It's like, yeah, they recovered a month ago. Like, we saw that, and now they're actually slowing down some of their refining throughput because they're, they, they actually increased uh, exports of diesel and gasoline to new records because they had such – they overestimated their local demand. So now you're going to see those purchases slow, which is which. To be fair, you need supply and demand to make a price, and supply has come out of the market. So Saudi Arabia has canceled shipments to China. That did happen. So you're starting to see a little bit of a normalization on both sides. But then the question comes down to, well, who's buying U.S. oil? You know, is U.S. crude going to find a home in Europe, in Asia? And that's when we start going back to crack spreads. And we say, okay, well, let's look at the crack spreads. Let's look at what are the refiners going to make running one versus the other. And when you look at the U.S., you know, essentially a refiner in Europe running U.S. oil is going to lose $6 and make $4 running Saudi crude. Well, that's an easy decision. And then that's something that is going to move the export market. And we've already seen, you know, coming full circle to, well, how is this predictive? You know, uh, last, the last two weeks, we've seen new orders of ships coming from the Gulf of Mexico into Europe going to an eight-month low. And that's something that just because of this refinery margin, as we look forward, that's going to continue. Because if I'm looking to buy, buy oil right now, for delivery in six weeks, I'm not buying U.S. crude. So, um, I mean, this is a big picture question, but what, what what do you think makes energy so important in, you know, forecasting out everything else, all other elements of the market and, uh, you know, politics? And, and do you do you feel like energy is uh, is one of those chief indicators for everything else? I, you know, the environmentalists will, will hate hearing that, but, you know, energy powers the world. So you can make an argument saying, well, energy is everything, which is true. You could say it's solar, it's wind. It's, it, but you have to think about what is moving the world right now. And it's still diesel. I still have a train that runs on diesel. I have a truck that runs on diesel. I have a ship that runs on diesel. So when I'm looking at these components, I need to appreciate that diesel is going to be a indicator of how is the world recovering? Is there more or less demand based on my crack spreads and what you know ports are doing? Like are are port are port loadings up or down? Are they flat? You know, it, you know, flat is the new up at this point. 
But when you kind of go forward and you think about, well, what about the derivatives? And then that's when you start getting into, into petrochemicals and you think about what I purchase. You know, and, and just, it's something simple. Like, you know, we, for being at home, we bought one of those little play sets for, for our kids. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm looking at to see what it's made out of, and it's made out of high density polyethylene. Well, that's an indicator. You know, HDPE is going to be an indicator of, you know, what are people buying? You know, that is, that was the high margin value on the, on the petrochemical chain. And everybody likes to talk about COVID as, you know, oh, well, it's an event. You know, this event was black swan. We didn't see it coming. But in 2019, you had a lot of really negative economic indicators from, uh, you know, PMIs all the way to margin. So we had a huge margin problem at the petrochemical level, which was driven by overcapacity, but also on slowing demand. So we were coming into a, a COVID-19 error on a weaker footing. And that's why I think the acceleration to the downside has been so precipitous because of the weakness on a lot of different levels, including gasoline demand, diesel, uh, distillate demand, um, petrochemical demand, as we kind of came into this, uh, you know, 2020. So what are you, what do you think are some anchors that you know, people aren't paying attention to right now, market anchors that are going to, you know, really slow down recovery. And and maybe they don't have, um, you know, maybe the, the line's not taut right now uh, in the sense of, you know, you still got some slack to, to move forward. But at some point, you know, that, that line's going to get taut and you're going to feel the impact of that. Is there anything out there that you think that the, the market and, uh, you know, general uh, media is, is ignoring? Yeah, so it's funny. One of the, the key components that I look at are exports and new orders. And you have to think about, well, who's an export economy? So the export economy is really driven by, in terms of bellwethers, you know, Germany, South Korea, obviously China, and Japan have been very good bellwethers of what is the health of the global economy. And they've been really indicative of, okay, well, what are their new orders? What is their export flow? And then, you know, and that's been a directive of, well, if exports are going up, that means they need to import more raw materials. That means their manufacturing is going to pick up. And there's more demand as, as import nations look to kind of take in the additional flow. That is something that continues to get ignored. And it was interesting because China put out some mixed data and everyone's like, well, why, why was that the case? It's like, well, it, it's a backlog. You know, they had to clear the backlog because the, the export data looked pretty good. But then when you looked forward, it looked terrible. Everyone's like, well, are they making, are, are they making the numbers fake? It's like, well, yes, like they're Chinese numbers. You know, so take them for, with a grain of salt. But when you look at the go forward, you can see, and this is just following the ships as they flow based on AIS transponders, the new ships coming in to pick up deliveries were much less than the export ships leaving. And that's just showing the backlog because, you know, COVID hit their ports, you know, and it's, it's impacting their, their, um, their, you know, their trade partners, if you will. So now there's a, an interesting backstop of 
well, how bad are exports going to get? And then that gets into emerging markets because emerging markets need exports to survive because they need to take in U.S. dollars. And then they're, they actually go out and buy diesel and, dis, and, um, and gasoline. And that, that's just not happening. And that's why I think you're going to get some stickiness in, in weak uh, oil supply, uh, oil demand, because you have these countries that just can't buy product. And if you can't buy product, then refined products build, and then refiners, you know, instead of r- ramping up throughput from eighty percent to ninety percent, they're going to stay at you know eighty to eighty-two percent. So, how, you know, if if you were to just uh, explain this to uh, you know some some guy on the street who doesn't understand the global markets, how how would you start? Where would you get them started to? to bring them to a place where they understand the interconnectedness of the global market and what type of impact that has on uh, the supply demand um, cycle of, of commodities, specifically it, it, oil and gas. It's interesting because I, I always go back to a car because everybody can think of a car and, and then I, and then I, I, I will, and then if that doesn't work, I'll talk about an iPhone and explain the manufacturing of an iPhone. But I think a car is a good one just because you've seen auto sales dip uh, pretty aggressively over, over the last uh, few, few months. And you have to think about what a car is made up of. You know, you have plastic, you have metal, you have electrical, you have, you know, uh, microchips, you know, you have software. So there's all these things that go into a car that need to be imported. So let's take Germany for an example, because I'm a German snob and I do love German cars. So when you look at Germany as a whole, they need to import iron ore, coal, uh, microchips, you know, from, from, uh, you know, Ireland, Taiwan, China, and they need to import all of these components to then manufacture a car. Now, once you, once you think about, well, how do they get the iron ore? Well, someone has to go out. They have to dig it. You know, by digging it, that requires more diesel. And then they take the, the, what, they, what they took, they put it onto a rail car. And then the rail car, which is burning diesel, takes it to the port. And then the port has more cranes that put it onto a ship. The ship burns diesel to get it to the German coast. Then Germany imports it from the coast, probably by rail car or barge, which again burns diesel to get it to the, the facility. Then they smelt it and you know, they mix it to make the high quality steel that they create, which again takes natural gas and, and some sort of pet, uh, you know, pet coal, a uh, met coal to do it. And then now you have a final product and you take the product, you load it onto a, uh, a train car, and then you take it to the facility. And that's just one component of an input. And that's where you can start to see it's like, oh, well, okay, so diesel goes from is moving everything around the world. It's like, well, yeah, and then take it to the next level. And you look at, you know, microchips and you look at, uh, you know, processing uh, computing power. And you have to take the raw materials and you have to bring them to South Korea. And then once they're in South Korea, then they get, you know, made into what they, what they need to be made into. And they go it by specific, uh, by specs. And then it has to get put onto a boat and then it gets, you know, pushed all the way to Germany. And then Germany imports it and builds it into the car. 
And that's where you get this final product, which then goes to, you know, the, the buyer of it, which is in, you know, the U.S., Latin America, wherever. And you can see the interconnective weaving of supply chains, which has become a global event over the last, you know, let's call it the last 25 years, which is being shaken up right now. And that's where you get these supply chain disruptions that can create shortages in different places. Hmm. So does, you know, do those disruptions um, create a short-term increase in transportation as manufacturers scramble to find uh, uh, or whoever, you know, assembling a a product scramble to find other producers of those goods? Or is it, um, uh, and I don't know if this is even really a good question now that I'm saying it out loud, but... um, Actually, let's let's change it. Let's change the question. So I think the uh, another question that I have then around that specific topic is, um, you know, when when you're looking at uh, global trends, it it seems like and this is just geopolitical. And this is why I'm really excited to be having this conversation with you, because you kind of I mean, you you told me you try to read four different books at a time and your retention of information is next level. And and that makes it really cool to be able to have you know, global talks with you on, on, you know, big picture things. And one, one of the things I've been reading is that there's, there's a generational shift here coming um, behind us where people are trying to get more nationalized uh, and, and keeping, you know, production local and uh, you know, buying from small businesses as opposed to uh, major corporations and, you know, the, how, how do you think that something, and, and do you agree with that? Do you think that's something going on from the way you're looking at it? And if it does, what, what type of demand destruction does that have long-term? No, absolutely. And I, I appreciate the, uh, the compliment. So thank you. The, so let's just take the, the questions in two parts, because your first question is also a very good question. And it's, it's twofold. One, the answer is yes. Companies are going through, uh, you know, great lengths to replace some of the key components, which is why you've actually seen air freight be relatively stable. And you have to consider why. Well, air freight is, is obviously FedEx has planes, but passenger jets also acted as cargo planes for a piece of the cargo hold. So with less flights taking off because of less uh, commercial flights, you actually have a shortage in air freight. And guys are scrambling to move things around, so you actually have a certain amount of stickiness in air freight in terms of price, cost, and, and, and just in terms of demand. The other side of the equation is you know, Amazon. Amazon talked about how even with economies of scale, their cost of, ship, of shipping went up 30%. And it, it's, it's a huge issue because, one, you have to buy PPE or protective gear for your, your workers to make sure that they're safe. Then you have to make sure the consumer is safe, so you have to protect, you know, obviously the people handling the packages. So all of a sudden, you have these huge costs that you were never expecting, and you can't offset those costs with more volume. And that's where you're getting these, these weird adjustments in terms of, you know, supply chain and shipping costs. And then looking at it from the perspective of generational cycles, you know, the joke is always, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And if you think about World War II and the people who fought and died in World War II, the view was, 
we will never let this happen again. This was so terrible. There was such atrocity done. We will never do this again. So we want to create a whole, uh, you know, a, let's just say a holistic view of the world, you know, openness. Let's, let's have everybody kind of share in the, the wealth going forward, exports, imports. And now you're getting some of that, that, uh, you know, we, the pendulum swung too far. And, and we're, we're now at a point where the, the Chinese tensions are increasing with the U.S. and Europe, again, way, way before um, COVID-19. This is just another, you know, you know, as we say, jet fuel to the forest fire. Hmm. So this now you have a situation where the generational cycles are like, well, why am I giving someone else this benefit when the costs are increasing? Because think about China. China was dirt cheap to build a manufacturing plant in 2000 because, you know, um, labor was cheap. There were no real environmental restrictions. You know, we could take advantage of this. Well, now things are changing. You know, environmental restrictions are increasing. Cost of labor is going up. And now it's like, well, maybe it doesn't make sense. And now throw in <laughs> supply chain disruptions and, and this, this view of a nationalistic fervor and you say, well, maybe we don't need to be there. And that's where I, I do think you're seeing that generational cycle as well as cost. So you have it's kind of twofold here. You have an economic reason and now you have a generational reason to become more of a nationalistic uh, component and kind of protect your own, especially in this economic uh, uh, climate. Yeah. Uh, so do you think there's already so much pull to nationalize and bring everything back home and domesticate to where it, it you know the market wouldn't keep pursuing these uh you know low cost um uh i guess states or countries that it seems like that was kind of the trend for really for the last you know 30 years or so. i'm just picking kind of a random number here but i'm thinking of china and india you know those those countries have were you know, very cheap labor, but then, you know, went up um, as, you know, more trade happened with those countries, you know, the cost of goods and, and services there went up and the cost of labor went up. And then they kind of, you know, the market sought after the next, you know, cheapest uh, economy. And I'm thinking, you know, Vietnam and I don't know, I'm just jumping around because I don't actually have the knowledge to, to talk about this. But I guess my point is, is, uh, you know, it, it, it seems like there's still a lot more room out there to go out and work with emerging markets to uh, produce things cheaply. But is that right now being too um, heavily outweighed by, um, you know, the, the desire and urge to, to bring things back home? And, and I guess, you know, not to make a compounding question here, but does that also differ depending on uh, what part of the world we're, we're talking about? So the, the shift away from China has been happening for years. Uh, the, the one of the last things to leave China was always going to be uh, chip manufacturing because it's so automated, but at the same time, it, it's so electrical um, uh, demanding. So if you think about the, you know, a chip manufacturing plant, it sucks a ton of juice from the wire, from, from the electrical grid. So you need the grid to support it. And you don't need the same type of support making polyester, you know, assembling a T-shirt. So when you think about the shifts away from China, you can see it, it started really early on in, um, in apparel. 
you know, apparel went to Indonesia, went to Malaysia, went to Vietnam, went to you know, Pakistan. And I think that's going to continue. And if you think about where all of that is, you know, Vietnam is an interesting place because they hate Americans, but they hate the Chinese more. And if you look at policy and what policy has been created, there's something called the nine dash line. And the nine dash line is what China uses to, to make claims on these random islands throughout the South China Sea. And it, it covers fishing grounds. It covers oil and gas reserves, but it, it also infringes on sovereignty. So you have countries that are saying, look, I don't like what China's doing. They've dammed my waterways you know, to try to create more res- uh, reservoirs for themselves, and now they're infringing on my coastal sovereignty. Mm-hmm. I want to find a friend or someone that can help me on both a military, on a military level but also an economic level. And that's where the U.S. has found more uh, – uh, friendlier relationships with places like Indonesia, Malaysia, and Vietnam specifically. And that also ble- uh, bleeds into India. You know, India is looking at this. You know, China and India have had multiple interactions in Bhutan, in Sikkim, and they're looking at this and saying, look, this is, this is getting this, – there's a problem here. And then you, you go to Pakistan and look at Kashmir, and they're saying, look, we need economic support, but at the same time, we need some – agreements on military help. And that's where you're starting to see those economic means marry with some of the military means in terms of creating a stability in the South China Sea. And the U.S. is trying to take advantage of that through investments because it makes sense, because I can get closer to the Strait of Malacca, the end user. I can also get closer to raw materials and I get away from you know, the Chinese regime, if you will. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I, I have so many different questions that are, you know, taking us, uh, I guess, further away from the, you know, central theme of the podcast, which is about oil and gas. But I, I think it's, you know, what, what we're talking about right now is so relevant to understanding the long term picture of things. And uh, for me, I mean, I, I wonder, you know, based on kind of what you said, do do we as a country have still have the resources and um you know, desire and intents to play other countries' battles and and fight their wars, um, or or are we seeing a shift away from that, or is it more of just like really hyper focused on you know what the strategic benefit is to us as a country and doing like a cost benefit analysis uh, on our economy before making any type of and I guess that's probably always something that's been done, but I wonder if it's even more so now than ever before. And that's why the Navy is such a huge focus, and that's why China wanted to create these islands that they could install anti-ship missiles, uh, anti-aircraft missiles, and uh, advanced radar to kind of push the U.S. Navy further away from their coast. Because let's be fair, there's 1.4 billion people, but they don't have a Navy, or they don't have a Navy that could even match anything close to what we have. And that's why you have countries that are looking at this and saying, look, we need freedom of navigation. We need to know that the waterways will be free. They'll be open to all who want to use them because they're international waters. 
And there's there's a lot of reasons why they want to maintain that that strategic point, and we want to enable them to do that. And so let's like you know to, to kind of tie this back to uh, to oil and gas. You look at Malaysia, Vietnam, Malaysia specifically. You know they've been looking to explore some of their uh, their oil and gas reserves just off their coast. And Rosneft has been a big part of their exploration. Well, Chinese coast, the Chinese Coast Guard has actually chased away and harassed uh, a Malaysian um, sonar and seismic vessel and several Rosneft vessels. Well, that's, that's, that's a problem. And that's a problem on a lot of levels because, one, that's not yours. That's Malaysia's based on what we define in international waters, what the U.N. agrees with, and just, just China doesn't agree with. So there's a lot of these impacts into how do we ensure sovereignty but also free trade. And that's why that marriage between U.S. and military might and economics makes sense because if we want to invest in plants and manufacturing in Malaysia, we want them to have cheap oil, cheap gas. So we're going to want them to have and, and invest and actually get some of these natural resources so then they can power themselves. And by powering themselves, it makes stuff, you know, stuff, just you know, widgets cheaper for the American consumer. So there's a lot of ways in which we use our naval capacity to keep those waterways open, but at the same time to protect that sovereignty that these these Malaysian individuals who rely on this area for fish because we need the labor the, and the person there to, to eat. But at the same time, if you increase a, a the local economy, you increase the spending power of the Malaysian people, which means that you can send you know U.S. goods into Malaysia. So it's a cycle that helps itself, but it all starts with the military, you know, the Navy protecting these waterways. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I just want to let everybody know too, that you actually have a map in, in that presentation that we're going to share. And I think it's really important to take a look at because it, you know, if you look at it and, and you, you think of all of the countries that are, you know, contained within this uh, outline, I mean, if China does take occupation of that area, it essentially just, annex or it makes a lot of countries inaccessible to the global market including you know malaysia thailand cambodia vietnam uh taiwan philippines i mean all, all that is just kind of kind of shut off from the world if if uh they they take control uh, of and, those seas and no absolutely and that's why like you when you look at the policies of belt and road initiative made in china 2025 you know, you look at how they're trying to adjust their spending patterns. So if you look at what China has done, for better or worse, you know, they've invested in vertical integration. So they looked at the U.S. and said, okay, the U.S. imports a lot of oil and exports product. So they buy cheap crude and they export high-value product and they make a margin. And China's the sitting there saying, we can do that. We have the relationships with the Middle East. We can take – and then like, think of it from, from some perspectives, depending on where you're coming from, it's a shorter distance. I, have to, I can pay less or I can you know, pay more depending on where, you know, where things are, are originating from. Mm. So now you have China, which has been buying and building a significant amount of refining capacity. Like from 2000 – I think it was 2002, they had 7 million barrels a day, and they're now at 19 of, of refinery throughput. 
you know, by 19 by the end of this year. So there's a, there's a huge jump in terms of where things have gone, and it has shifted supply chains. Because I make the joke that if Shell or BP had a cargo of gasoline to sell, you know, they in 20 in 2012 they call up China and China say, yeah, I'll take it. I'll just I'm gonna I'm gonna pay you four dollars less than what you want, and it's just off their sheets, so they don't care. They're like, fine, just take it. Now they're sitting there saying, oh, by the way. We actually also have four shipments of gasoline to sell. So do you want to sh- sell them for us or do you want to be competitors? And that's how you, you're getting this weird dump. Like China used to be the dumping ground for, for stranded um, raw materials. And now they're exporters of a lot of this stuff that they used to be the buyer of last resort if no one else could find it. And you're getting these weird shifts in the supply chain that are forever different but people still haven't adjusted their models to, if you will, in terms of the way the global oil and refined products and pet chems move throughout the world. Hmm. So, I mean, I have two big questions. Um, and I think I'll come back to one of them after, but uh, my, my one right now is, you know, what, when we come back to the U S what are the key relationships, uh, domestic relate or international relationships uh when it comes to import export and which of those are in the most um you know threat of getting disrupted by geopolitical issues you know one of the big ones is is simple and is kind of key to the survival of of anyone and it's really food and if you look at china china has you know about 20 percent 21 percent of the world's population and about 12% of the world's arable land where the people actually live on top of the only places you can actually grow food. Mm. So there's a huge shortfall in food. And if you think about who actually grows the most, it's the U.S. grows the most corn, you know, uh, Brazil grows the most soybeans, and Russia grows the most wheat. So you have to look at those three places of, in China where th- that's something they can't replace. They need to buy this product in order to feed their people. And that's the biggest kind of bellwether in terms of, well, okay, well, how can we leverage that? And how can we, we try to take that and say, look, you need this. Let's come to some sort of an agreement. And when you, when you burn that down to other sides of, of, the, uh, of the equation, you know, I, I think it was last year that the, the trade deficit was $353 billion. You know, there's got to be other ways to, to fix that outside of just buy more food. You know, it's got to be something where, you know, maybe we're, we're importing less and we're exporting the same amount, but we're going to import less. Like, I don't know if you saw uh, Taiwan uh, semiconductor companies looking to build a semiconductor plant in the U.S. for $12 billion. Well, maybe that means we buy less from China now. And we have more investment in the domestic economy. We have, you know, foreign nations that we're friendly with, which is, you know, Taiwan being the key component of also pissing off China. But, you know, these are, these are ways where you can start to see manufacturing and some of these supply chain issues come back home, which would then decrease our reliance on China. And that would be a way to kind of balance that, that component. But at the same time, as China looks to grow, 
and looks to become a, a, a global power with vertical integration, they're going to require a lot of raw materials that they don't have naturally. And those are some of those things that we can try to leverage to get a better relationship or better, you know, uh, you know, let's just say less tariffs on the receiving end to, to make it a more uh, palatable trade trade agreement. So are there indications domestically in America that we are truly trying to bring more manufacturing home in a meaningful way to where we can actually sustain, uh, you know, domestic production and at a, in a cost effective way? It's still early. And, and we still have friendly relationships in, in a lot of different countries. You know, even though you hear, you know, Mexico, Canada are in the news, you know, Europe is in the news, we, they're still our allies. They're still our friends, and they have been for generations, and they will remain for generations. So there are, are ways in which we can bring things closer to home and reduce some of the shipping costs and some of the geopolitical risk while still being cost-effective. And that's why you're not going to see 100% come back, but maybe you'll see 30% come back. It'll create redundancies. You know, so if there is a, uh, a disruption, you know, then you, you'll have a little bit of a cushion. And the bigger issue is the way we do business now in terms of inventories. You know, inventories became at-time deliveries. When you're operating at at-time deliveries, that's exactly what it means. I need it on that date at that time. But it reduces my overhead because I have to, I'm going to hold less inventory, which is good for me over the long run. But when you experience something at this magnitude for, for this long, that, then that becomes a problem. So you need to find local sources to offset, even if it's going to cost you a little bit more. And that's what I think you're, we're, we're trying to figure out what balance makes sense. You know, I, I'm, I'm comfortable in saying that about 30%, 20 to 30% comes back to the U.S. And, and then the rest is it, we start to leverage both Mexico, Europe, and Canada a bit more in order to create a, um, a, a supply chain that can weather some of these storms. So uh, when you're looking at oil as a as a oil and, and uh, gas as a, you know consumable product, what are some of the other you know products and uh, or goods that follow uh, really closely to oil and gas uh, internationally? So that, that's a great question, and that's where we, you know we shift into LPG or liquefied petroleum gas, which is a mixture of propane, butane. Which is uh, and then LNG, which is the liquefied natural gas and condensate, uh, or naphtha, if you will. So just starting from there and going further down, you know, those are all other places that the U.S. is rich in, and the world is going to need more of. So I actually think that we're coming to a peak in terms of oil demand, and, and I'm not talking about the hundred million barrel a day number because the hundred million barrel a day number that's quoted includes. NGLs or natural gas liquids, condensate, and oil. I think the NGLs and condensate are going to take a bigger piece of market share away from oil with actually LNG increasing. And now the U.S. being, let's just call it flush in natural gas, we have an opportunity to, to leverage that to, to take market share and build market share in a growing pie of LNG demand. So this is another area in which we can 
you know, make some sort of an agreement with, with China. You know, we've seen India LPG demand has increased, Chinese LPG demand has increased, and both of them have seen an increase in LNG demand. So there's something to be said in terms of how we can provide these entities with cheap fuel that is more, let's just say, environmentally friendly and it, it, very efficient in the way it burns. Then you have condensate, and if you think about the build-out of chemicals, you know, naphtha and heavy and light naphtha are going to have a higher demand in the market, just given the, uh, the, the slate of chemical reactions and chemical movements. And that really kind of boils down further into, well, what else can we send? Like, do we have, you know, ingenuity and, and opportunity here? And, and I think we do, especially because, you know, electricity is cheap, natural gas is cheap, condensate is going to be cheap for a very long time, uh, and natural gas liquids as well. So th- there's an opportunity to, to kind of leverage that as well on a uh, chemical, um, sending out, you know, chemical products, you know, high-value products, which I, I think will be very important over the longer term. So when you're looking at, and, and this is a theme that I've been hearing as far as the LNG demand, what what is uh, the the main consumption of LNG? What's the major application? Is it uh, electrical generation? Yeah, the biggest component is electrical generation. So you, you think of it from electrical generation, uh, heating the home, and then keeping the pilot light on. So pilot light on could be in the chemical facility, could be in the refiner. You, you need to keep that on to in order to cook whatever you're, you're you're creating. So there's something to be said in terms of where that's going, but the electrical side is the biggest. So domestically, then, um, wh- where do you feel like are the best, most uh, I don't know which fields uh, domestically are are the most promising from an LNG, um, from an infrastructural, you know, geopolitical, U.S. geopolitical perspective uh, for long-term global uh, production supply? So I I, I actually think I I was early to say that Qatar and Mozambique were never going to see the light of day before 2030. And it was only because when you look at Qatar and you look at their relationship with Iran, the U.S. relationship with Iran, I was just saying that, look, there's no way we're going to allow Qatar to sell or to, to give Iran money on, on uh, revenue sharing. At the same time, we were never going to allow our companies to do something that was going to aid Iran. And, at, and now with this current down cycle on energy uh, balance sheets, there's unlikely anybody has the money to build something that's 33 MTPA or million tons per annum in Qatar. Mozambique, you know, we were talking about the generational cycles is going through its own shift. You know, they, they have an increase in terrorism. They have an increase in, uh, in domestic upheaval, which is going to impact their ability to actually build such large facilities. So when you think about long-term demand growth, which I think is there on the LNG level, the U.S. becomes a likely home for stability and for cheap natural gas. Now, you look at Appalachia, you know, there's a huge chunk of dry gas and wet gas that can come down at, at uh, you know, relatively cheap prices. The Haynesville, as prices get higher, you know, you always have that swing production. But also uh, Oklahoma, you know, there's a huge amount of dry gas that nobody really talks about in Oklahoma 
that has a lot of value just based on one location, two infrastructure, and then three like where it that we're going to make the LNG, which has been the Gulf of Mexico. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity within that construct as we go out over the next, call it five to ten years. I think a lot of the facilities that have been talked about and pushed won't see the light of day. I think there's going to be a changeover in terms of who's building, you know, what companies make the most sense. But I think that this is a long-term opportunity for the U.S. to take a, a, a big part of the global market share on current market share, but also going forward as the pie gets bigger. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we've been having that discussion internally within our company is, you know, where do we invest domestically to where we have protection from uh, the uh, escalation of, um, you know, looking for ESG and environmentally sound consumption of energy, if there ever is such a thing. But, um, uh, and and I think the conversation is, yeah, like Texas, Oklahoma, you know, those are not only do you have clean access, clear access to the Gulf through very, you know, oil and gas friendly states, but you also have tremendous amount of supply. And it makes me, you know, I, I guess that, you know, going off of that, what the question would be, what type of data, if any, is there available to forecast the acceleration of the the uh, ESG demand and also uh, the, I guess, left's pressure for um, cutting the production of oil and gas production production and, and what, what impact, you know, uh, how soon I guess that's going to occur uh, and, and how that's going to contract around uh, these, you know, primarily just the oil and gas friendly states as opposed to places like Colorado where, I mean, we're, we're here in our backyard and we already feel uh, the tension escalating to a point where a lot of operators don't want to be here anymore. Yeah, it's, it's always, it's always a conundrum. You know, you look at Boston, right? So Boston is imports oil, I'm sorry, imports uh, natural gas through LNG from Britain even though they're a stone throw from Pennsylvania, all because we don't want to build pipelines. And it's just, it, it's foolish, it's, it's silly, but, you know, it is, it's the state at which we live in. And, and if you think about, you know, New York is the same way, you know, the view was that we're never going to uh, build another pipeline. We don't want this, quote unquote, dirty fuel. But I, I think there's a balance and there's always going to be a mix. And ESG has been some kitschy thing that people like to use to, to try to throw around, but realistically, an Apple iPhone is just as dirty, if not dirtier, than most of the quote-unquote dirty products people talk about. And that's looking cradle to grave, you know, looking at it from the, from the perspective of, you know, how do I get it out of the ground at a raw material level to how do I recycle the product? And when I look at natural gas, it's going to have a home, and it's going to be a, a, a mixture of everything. It's going to be a mixture of solar, wind, short cycle gas turbines, but also nuclear. Because the thing that I think we're going to find out the hard way is that when you have a snow bomb or polar vortex or whatever fun term that they like to use, when you have a polar vortex, you can't operate a natural gas facility because you have a freeze off. So how are you going to operate that? You know, you can't use solar, you can't use wind. So what are you going to generate power to make sure people don't freeze to death? 
Mm. And that is something that has to be considered when you when you think about shutting down coal, shutting down nuclear, and trying to figure out what does the mix look like. Mm. Then you look at ESG and break it apart. So you have the environmental, you have the social, you have the governance. I think every single person that's listening to this or has ever invested or worked in uh, energy can say that governance sucks and we need to fix governance. And that is a sweeping view on the market as a whole where we've ushered in the golden age of white collar crime. So governance, I think that's where ESG can have the most benefit. Like you look at the social side. Is a hospital worth more than water supply? Like if I build roads, am I worth less because I didn't build a hospital or, or a school? On the environmental side, like am I doing cradle to grave? Is it just like how do you, how do I measure it so it's a it's a metric that can be weighted against everybody? But governance is one that I think matters the most when you're when you're trying to adjust um, boards of directors, uh, executive pay, you know, how is it tied to like, what numbers is it tied to? There's a lot to be said about the ESG conversation from the government side. Then I, I think it's the, it's, it really needs to be the balance because natural gas has its place. It's, it's, a, it's, um, plentiful. It's, um, it's efficient and there's ways to mitigate any type of environmental damage from methane counters in terms of leak, uh, and uh, all the way down to trying to enrich it on a BTU level because we have so much ethane, you know, maybe we can make things a bit cleaner because it'll burn hotter. You know, there's a lot of ways that we can adjust that mix to become, uh, I think, a powerhouse that can meet ESG standards, but at the same time, create cheap, uh, efficient um, power. Yeah, uh, I think those were all really good points, too, and uh, especially... And, uh, you know, I think we are losing sight of uh, it's the same issue that we're in right now with COVID-19. I mean, we didn't really apply foresight to to this event, even though we had all the indicators that this could happen. And and it sounds like you were doing the same thing in the energy space and that, you know, we're we're cutting, you know, cutting our legs off on on different sources of energy that, um, you know, might be great for some anomaly event that you know might arise and and there's people out there that i don't know if they're right or not but you know say that things like solar cycles uh that can come along and you know sustain for a 50-year period that can put the environment into a, a state of extreme flux that we aren't really familiar with um in a modern day society that could totally disrupt um the our way of life in other ways and and if we don't have consistent sources of energy the impact to human life is significant yeah and and that's something that has to be considered of when you when you're looking at nuclear you're, you're looking at coal you know what is what is the cost of life to get rid of it you know what do we do we have a redundancy and at the same time if we want to become a manufacturing powerhouse and we want to bring manufacturing home, we also need a, a reliable grid. So how do you do that? You have to reduce transmission lines because you don't want to, you, you want the most efficient electricity. And when you have to move it over long distances, you know, you lose a huge amount of efficiency through wireline loss. And there's a lot of ways to mitigate that. And I think the conversation has to be opened up to, okay, let's accept we need some of this. Let's do it in the most 
efficient way possible, while also ex- re- respecting the fact that residential solar makes sense. You know, there there is a lot of residential solar that that has that has legs, it has efficiency. You know, but when you think of it from a, a, a huge solar farm perspective, one, land is a resource and you're taking up a huge amount of land. And two, soil is important. You know, the higher the clay content, the less efficient my solar panels will operate, the closer they are to the ground. Mm-hmm. So I really can't be in Texas because Texas has the highest clay content in the world, i.e. Hurricane Harvey and how the water just piled up. Same to be said with the Northeast. But you look at Florida, Nevada, so, uh, Southern California, which has a very low clay content, you have the, op- the opportunity to say this makes sense. And when people tell, like, say to me, well, how do I know if I have clay content? Well, think of your car after a rainstorm. Does it look like you went through the car wash or that you went on a dirt road and went mudding? And that's kind of where you can see how much clay is in is in your your rainwater, and it's just like stupid little things that I, when I was living in the Middle East, these are things that we had to look at to think of the efficiency of electrical generation, you know. And that was where we we were investigating geothermal, solar, short cycle gas turbines, and wind to figure out okay, what makes the most sense in this. Op- these opportunities, and that's why I think nuclear, with some of the uh, the pebble reactors, are very interesting because they can be small scale, very safe because of the the pebble, like the uranium is dropped into the pebble, and then the pebbles are dropped into a uh, essentially a sleeve to create the reactor. So what does that do? It creates more containment, which is good, obviously for obvious reasons for anyone who's watched Chernobyl. But it also creates more ability for water to make contact with the pebbles because it has it creates more surface area. So it means that it can be cooled off much faster and be maintained with less water in case of an error. And those are things that I, I think people ignore because nuclear has a dirty, dirty name attached to it. But there's a lot of value in terms of that after after you build a facility, I mean, there's zero emissions. So you're talking about something that is highly environmentally friendly as long as it's done right. Yeah. And so I, I just think of uh, your your abilities and, and the skill sets here. And it makes me want to ask another question, which is, you know, when you look at history, how good are we as humanity uh, as a whole in adopting things that make logical sense? versus just taking arbitrary paths based on, you know, groupthink or whatever's driving, um, you know, society that given moment in time? Yeah, and it's a great question because, you know, the, uh, the argument is always how, how long can you be economically stupid until you are just, you know, shooting yourself in the foot? And, and I think you can maintain that a lot longer than you'd like to think rational. But I think for the most part, people appreciate human life. And when human life is becoming impacted to such a degree, change has to occur. And I think we're coming to that point where we've recognized the fact that, look, human life is being impacted around the world. We need to come up with a solution that makes sense, but we can't do something that's so foolish that we destroy ourselves on an economic level. And that's why I think that natural gas isn't a bridge fuel. It is part of the solution. 
Mm. And it's, it's worth exploring that to say, okay, well, how am I going to create something that makes the most sense? Because you like take Boston for an example on their LNG imports, you know, the LNG comes from the Isles of Grain, which is made up of TNT, natural gas, uh, LNG and Russian LNG. So I have to take all of that LNG from Yamal, Russia, go around the Arctic, like through the Arctic Circle down into Britain to create this natural gas that is then put into regasified, then put into a new boat, re, uh, you know, turned back into LNG and sent across the Atlantic. That seems pretty stupid and very <laughs> carbon intensive. So there's got to be a better way. And, and you're saying that's what goes to the East Coast? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and it's because we, we, have, we don't have a Jones Act vessel. And for those that don't know what a Jones Act vessel is, it's a vessel that was built and manned by Americans. That is the only way we can go from one U.S. port to another. So if we wanted to go from Chenier, you know, Sabine Pass, with an LNG vessel to Boston, it has to be a Jones Act LNG vessel, and one does not exist. Man, it's just all, it just, it's so illogical. And, and, yeah. and it's just painful to think of the, the things we do for the, for namesakes of whatever it is at any given moment. And in this specific conversation, it's, yeah, I don't want a pipeline, but I'll, I'll take, I don't want a pipeline, but I'll take, you know, giant wind turbines on the horizon. I'm, I'm fine with that, but. It, yeah. It, it, there's something there, and, and you have to think about storage. You know, whenever I, we have these conversations about wind and solar, my question is always, oh, okay, well, how far is my transmission line, and how do I store the power? You know, do, do I how much battery capacity do I need? How much redundancy do I need? And those are very complicated questions, and based on just battery technology right now, we just clearly don't have the answer yet. I, I think we will. Like, you know, what do, what do we do in America but, but arbitrage and invent things? And, and I think that there is enough brain power and money behind it to come up with a solution, but it's just, it, we're just not there yet. Yeah. But the thing is, we already built it. I mean, I was just driving through Kansas and, you know, the entire stretch of I-70 was just lined with, uh, you know, wind turbines that connected to nowhere. Uh, I don't know where they ultimately terminate, but there is no city in sight. You know, I, uh, Kansas is an Island onto itself as far as, uh, you know, population is concerned until you get to really Kansas city. So it's, it's just where, where does that energy need to get to before anybody actually uses it? And, you know, how much was lost by the time it gets there and, and the occupation of surface area is tremendous, not to mention, you know, where are all those things going to go when they stop working and, and you got to replace them? You got to go bury them somewhere. Yeah. And that's, again, that, that's why I always like to talk about cradle to grave, because I, I think that's lost when you think about the, well, how did I make it? Is it carbon fiber? Is it wood? Is it other? And then how do I get rid of it? Like, where am I putting it? Is there a way I can rip apart the carbon fiber and use it somewhere else? Is there, is there a means in which I can do something? And it's just the short answer is no right now. Yeah. Well, um, I don't want to go too far over, even though, well, I personally do, but I, I don't want to, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to make the listeners, uh, have too long here. So, uh, I think, can you tell us a little bit more of different resources that you're part of that, you know, they can, they can get access to and, 
and keep track of what you're working on and uh, all the content that you share. Cause I know you're very active uh, on, on social media and other uh, public resources that people have access to. Uh, absolutely. So the uh, C6 as its own right does, um, does consulting bespoke work, but also we're in the process of, you know, looking at a, a private equity fund as well to invest in some of the infrastructure and things that we've talked about that we we think there's opportunity in. Uh, the other is primary vision. So primary vision, we look at frac spread counts. Uh, we do it on a national level. We also do it on a basin by basin level. So we look at all 17 basins in terms of the way the EIA breaks it down. And then we look at all the consumables, both top hole and, and down hole. So we're looking at horsepower, spreads on their, you know, spreads obviously, but also downhole, prop in loadings, chemicals, uh, you know, uh, wastewater, you know, what is essentially anything you can think of that goes down a well to fracture it. And through them, I, I also do uh, writings in terms of twice a month reports, trying to tie together everything that we've, that we've talked about. And we've, we've kind of created a kitschy name for it. I've called it uh, well to wheel. You know, I'm looking at the demand side and I say, okay, what is the demand doing? And then I look up to primary vision. I use them to figure out where is the supply in the world. I use my contacts and some of my um, transponder data to figure out where is the other supply coming from around the world. And I try to connect the two and, and level it with, um, with the economic data. And uh, twice a week, we also do a YouTube video uh, that uh, through the primary vision network where we just talk about things that are important, you know, 10 to 20 minute videos, Wednesdays on the uh, the EIA and relevant data kind of going forward in the short term. And then Fridays looking at more of the longer term economic trends and looking at the, the primary vision national track spread count and what it means kind of going forward. You know, some little tidbits like you know, the frac spread count went from 47 nationally, uh, 47 on May 5th, and uh, on May 15th, it was 45. And to give you some kind of indications on January 3rd, it was 335. Mm-hmm. So th- this is when we, we start to look at, okay, well, obviously completions are being laid down. You know, the completions are essentially coming to a stop or a halt. And, you know, where does the price start to get interesting again now that we've come off the bottom pretty hard? And that was our conversations we're going to be having over the next few weeks in terms of where does U.S. supply uh, go and what basins benefit. Okay. Well, great. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I just am so impressed by the scope and breadth of your knowledge. I think uh, it's it's a huge value for anybody who wants to keep track on uh, big picture trends. So. Thanks uh, so much for spending time with us today and uh, sharing all your insights with us. That was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the show. On the next podcast, we will be interviewing Dr. Scott Tinker, who is the director of the Bureau of Economic Geology, the state geologist of Texas, and professor of the Jackson School of Geoscience at the University of Texas. It's a really fascinating show where he takes us through his journey in forming Switch Energy Alliance, which has two published documentaries, Switch and Switch On, which cover the topics of energy transition and global energy poverty. As always, if you have any recommendations for future guests on the show, please visit us on our website at oilintel.com. And finally, 
If you're a professional or part of an organization that's looking to create some change within the business, but looking for external help, Oil Intel is here to connect you with the right people. You can send me personally an email at adam at oilintel.com. That's adam at oilintel.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and frack on.